Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are continuing our discussions from our uh, from our video show with Bishop Craig Williams. Greetings, Bishop Williams. How are you this evening? Good. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we were having a great show. I know that myself and Bishop Peterson um, um, were kind of looking at the clock going, man, this is ending too quickly. So I'm yes. glad that you're able to spend this next, uh, we'll call it hour with us. Um, hello, Bishop Peterson. Good to see you. I think we lost your video during our video show. You, you, you did. This, I have a very uh, irascible camera, so I'm, we're using my my laptop camera now. But yes, it's um, it's good to see you as well. Well, um, you know, I had so many questions, and I'm sure that... I'm great, too, uh, Bishop Canterbury. Thank you for oh, asking. Yeah, oh, hello, yes. Mother Tony. <laughs> yes, and we are being joined by our wonderful producer, Father Tony, as well. Um, Very wonderful producer. Yes, yes, we love Father Tony. You all get a raise. Uh, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> you know, uh, let's, let's double what we're currently making. <laughs> um well, I think I will want to kind of dive right back into this. You know, we were talking, uh, uh, I think one of our last questions that, that I had given to you was uh, that many within the Western mystery traditions uh, um, kind of, uh, I think they have a, a variety of different imagery, you know, when, when Tantra comes to mind. You know, there are many of the Western mystery occult schools who either openly discuss or or secretly discuss, you know, having some form of sexual magic or sexual practices or tantric systems within their own esoteric school. And, you know, what I find kind of interesting in many of these is that many of these is almost at the pinnacle of their particular grade system or of their particular system of initiation. Um, when, you know, one of the things that we kind of argue or not really argue, but discuss pretty frequently on the show is that, you know, um, you know, if, as Gnostics, it's all about the doing. It's all about the practice. I mean, we can sit here and you may write a wonderful book or have some great articles, but without really getting into the practices, no Gnosis is going to occur. <laughs> you know, one has to really get involved with this. And I think, you know, in, especially when it comes to, to Tantra, I think Bishop Peterson may agree with me on this, you know, is that, um, you know, I don't know necessarily, though, if students necessarily want to get involved with a teacher or mentor and start maybe necessarily diving into, you know, a tantric practice. I think in many ways, that's some of the reasons why, at least within the uh, Western traditions, that, you know, students were kind of weeded out. I think part of the grading systems in many of these was, okay, let's get rid of all the whack jobs and the ones who are totally serious and have shown that they can put forth the effort in this. We're going to kind of continue and gradually kind of reveal these particular secrets. Uh, does that differ really, though, when we're looking at it from an Eastern uh, kind of point of view, uh, Bishop Williams? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think... That I well, I mean, yes and no. I do see a distinct difference between Eastern and Western traditionally, in the sense that in the East, it was definitely not uncommon for a teacher to say, "You you don't have what it takes. Mm -hmm. this, this is not the path for you." I saw that when I studied Chinese medicine. I saw it when I studied Ayurveda, and definitely with more esoteric traditions. Now in the West, um, usually whether it's for a financial reason or other reasons, everything seems to be molded to be sure that everyone fits no matter what. So I think that can be tricky. Um, mm -hmm. It's a tricky system. It doesn't mean that um, we can say to weed out the people that are troubling or something like that. But for, more often than not, I, I think it's not so much a weeding out as I'm just concerned that some people need to get more basic things in their life in order before they pursue deeper esoteric practice. Because I think a lot of people jump to esoteric practices in the West to fix their lives, yeah, yeah, or oh, to yeah. you know to bring them some kind of magical healing or bring them something they feel like they're lacking in an exoteric sense um, uh, within. So I think in the that's troubling to me. So I always try to look to be sure that people um, have some kind of sense of balance in their life. Um, yeah. I think it's I think interesting. interesting. We were talking we were earlier on the, and I think it's on the video show about the necessity that, that the gurus in the Eastern, uh, Eastern Paths tradition will actually in, in instruct uh, the student to eat 
make dietary changes and wean off of certain substances. They want to get the person into balance physically. And I know that in the in the West, people like Israel Regardi, for example, said you've got to be in psychotherapy for a year. Oh <laughs> before... my God, that's so important. Yeah, that and so, so it's. I think you're bringing up something here that's and it's incredibly important is that you know the the Eastern folks would perhaps pay a lot of attention as well to the body. Um, I've been a student of the of Gurdjieff's Fourth Way for a while now, and of course Gurdjieff kind of tried to harmonize yeah. both Eastern and Western teachings. Definitely. And part big part of him is that you know that you're you're working on your body, you're working on your intellect, you're working on your emotions all at one time, yeah. and he tried to integrate that. But I think it is important that balance must be a preliminary thing <laughs> um, yeah, before you, you decide you're going to you decide you're going to seek, you know, seek adepthood. Um, you have to get certain things in order first. Oh, mm -hmm. completely. Yeah, psychotherapy and psychology are so important. Um, and sometimes people pay kind of lip service to that, mm -hmm. but oftentimes, I mean, you know, I want to tell people, no, I mean, you need therapy for a year. Yeah. You know, like good cognitive therapy, and then move into something. You know, whatever that means to each person. Obviously, you can, it can be different systems, but um, it's very important. We, we, you know, we see that in Ayurveda as well. Um, there's a whole system of yoga psychology that needs to be balanced before you move into the more esoteric practices. Yeah, I, I would I would think so. Um, and I, as I said, I, I do you find? I mean, I know that your traditional Oriental medicine, uh, traditional Chinese medicine. I'm sorry, and uh, the Ayurvedic work and the acupuncture. Um, do you often find yourself working on on, on psychological level with your with your clients? Well, yes, yes, and no. I mean, you know, I think that the tr the idea of psychology in the east and psychology in the west can be really different sure um, for example like no one goes well not no one but traditionally no one was going to a doctor in china and saying i'm depressed mm -hmm. they just didn't do that in america they'll come in and say i'm depressed but uh, in china they developed really interesting psychosomatic ways of emotions expressing themselves in the physical body oh, okay yeah. and so that was really fascinating to see that kind of uh, being transplanted in the West and navigating that, um, obviously for cultural reasons, um, some of those more spiritual aspects in Chinese medicine were taken out mm -hmm. when communism took over, um, although they saved a lot of aspects of the medicine as a result of that. In India, the spirituality, the psychology was kind of always kept together, and so it was a little bit easier for that. But yeah, I think that we can't ignore that. I mean, one of the most basic questions I ask my patients on the initial intake when we're done with everything else is what brings you passion and inspiration in your life and I, I am it never ceases to amaze me how people will look at me with a blank stare when I ask them that question because either a they, they don't know or which is kind of sad or mm -hmm. B or B um, no one's has ever even asked them that yes uh, and so they're shocked in a good way Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we can't ignore that, you know, just because you, you can have a vitamin B12 deficiency, but you can also have a deficiency in being inspired uh, or feeling fulfillment from your life in a way that um, is not so tangible on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. so I think we, we need to be sure that we cover all the bases on that. So just to clarify, in other words, a person might not, in, in China, might not go to a doctor and traditionally would not have gone to a doctor and said, I'm depressed, but the doctor might be able to diagnose what we would call here depression based on physical symptoms? Yeah, they would come in in China, they'd say, I'm tired, I don't, I'm not sleeping well, my libido is gone, um, my digestion's off, mm -hmm. and then see these whole different kind of, kind of frameworks come, they'll call that shin disorder. A different kind of disorder, and so that uh, liver chi stagnation, which means frustration with life. Which you know, there's a saying in Chinese medicine that all adults have liver chi stagnation, meaning all adults are frustrated with life because adults can't get what they want. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so that's, that's just normal. So we have to look at those aspects. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's very particular and, and important now because in the Western world, we tend to think that everything can be fixed with a pill. 
Yeah, you know, and it's funny because when we were talking about about the psychosomatic diagnoses in, in Chinese medicine, I was thinking there's a popular antidepressant that's advertised with the slogan "depressions depression hurts" because yeah. one of the things that this antidepression drug does, antidepressant does, is that it helps to alleviate physical symptoms, physical symptoms uh, right. of pain. Um, so I, I started thinking about that, and it was actually one of the first times I'd ever encountered the idea that people who are depressed feel physical pain. It's not emotional pain, or some people would minimize depression right. by just saying, well, it's not real pain. It's not physical pain. It's emotional pain. Well, actually, it's not. You know, there yeah. is actually yeah. pain. Yeah, we exactly. call it pain for a reason. Just because yeah. there isn't something puncturing your skin or hitting you mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're not feeling pain. So that's yeah. interesting. So, yes, I think we need in any kind of healing modality we need to be sure that we're examining all ideas of what vitality or health means. In Ayurveda, someone's not healthy unless they're physically healthy, but also psychologically healthy, but also they would say spiritually healthy. Okay. So that would be what they would shoot for as health, not just your cholesterol's good, your blood pressure is great, you're good, take care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then everybody's like, but I don't feel good. Well, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You know, next, because they only have eight minutes to see you. Right. So I think, yeah. you know, we need to have a whole system of referrals. Another thing, too, is we can't expect everyone to do everything. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I constantly refer out to cognitive therapists, um, counselors, um, mm -hmm. for pastoral counseling if I don't have time for that. Um, so that I think we have to look at the big picture on everything. And uh, from the, for, so from that position of health and wellness, gnosis, I, I, experiencing gnosis, attaining gnosis, would you say that that's going to be not necessarily an easier path, but just a lot more possible? If you're physically balanced, yes. Yeah, I think that if you're physically healthy and you're mentally healthy, you're at least you know on a pathway to achieve that. Um, in my opinion, that yes, your spiritual practice can be more inspiring and healthy because your brains is working better, your mm -hmm. circulation's working better, you're more energetic, you're more positive. So that also too, we know that with a gnosis, um, like we kind of said earlier, transformation is always a little bit messy. Absolutely. So when we're going through that, we want to be strong and healthy enough to be able to say, "I'm sad today, but I know I'll get through this." Mm -hmm. And when you're tired and fatigued. You're sad. Everything seems like the world's coming down on you. You don't have a light at the end of the tunnel. And so the, the, that little bit um, can be huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, we've had we've had mental health practitioners on the show before. That's, and we, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And we think it, we, well, I know we think it's really important. Bishop Canterbury and I have you know, our own experiences with that. So we, we, we think it's important. But it's great to have somebody who also does work with the body and certainly from a different modality. So we, mm -hmm. we really appreciate having you here. I want to backtrack a little bit. We were talking about left-hand path stuff. And uh, right. Bishop Canterbury noted that a left-hand path has, and uh, I'm using the word sinister, uh, connotations for a lot of people. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, you did. <laughs> But um, that for people, you know, it freaks out. Left-hand path, eek, eek, eek. Yeah. Uh, Satan and Baphomet and, and esoteric Nazis and, and things like that. Um, <laughs> but um, you, you, know, you, you present a, a different way of understanding that. Um, do you, some of the literature that I've read on left-hand path stuff is, suggests that a, a lot of it may involve a certain amount of antinomianism, the idea of... Um, turning convention on its head, not slipping into conventional behaviors. Do you, do you find that to be true? Absolutely. I mean, I think in the modern world, we're always fighting against being conditioned into being just a commodified product. Mm -hmm. And so it, that, that I think in now, particularly if we want to kind of throw around terms like the Kali Yuga, where we're living in a time of ignorance, and yeah. even the, the traditional, you know, Indian texts would say in the Kali Yuga, the only thing that would work would be Tantra. Um, because it was somewhat, it, they would say it was someone in, because it was unconventional, that the standard systems would not work. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily go to that dramatic mm -hmm. idea, but I do think that in this time, that uh, for certain individuals, um, the left hand path is very important because uh, 
they can break through uh, kind of conditionings that are limiting them in some ways. And I often refer to that as our archonic forces, you know, when the world yes. seeks to keep us uh, commodified, homogenized, standardized mm-hmm. in different ways. And I, I actually battle this constantly in the yogic world because uh, in the yogic scene, they often portray that everyone has to be sattvic. And everybody has to be happy all the time. And, and your pathway has to be so balanced. And you can only experience sat Chidananda all the time. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it's absurd. It's, it's, it's patently absurd. It, it basically, you could take out the words uh, yoga and you sound like a Baptist preacher saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, and only do the things which we are supposed to do. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to understand that as humans, our desires are not evil. You know, we, even in Ayurveda, we say there's one of the most important things for health is to non, not suppress your urges. And that means something very practical is the urge to burp, the urge to urinate, the urge to have to go to the bathroom, the urge to eat when you're hungry. And it also means the urge to have sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, what everything it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And so I think left hand path says that the human experience um, has the potential to be. Uh, transformative and it has the potential to be uh, I guess some people would say divine or now how would you um, take the and not don't suppress your urges how would that it fit in with a guru who was prescribing certain dietary restrictions or certain medicine you know, herbal medicines or whatnot how, how would that fit into that yeah that's a good question because you see that a lot today when people will say things like well you know follow your heart or you know you'll know what you need best um, but we know that's for most gurus or teachers would say, actually, that's not the case at all. Right. Those people, mm-hmm. who they think they are, is not even who they think they are. They Absolutely. Not who they think they are. I mean, we know now that, that, you know, a sobering thought is most people's memories aren't even accurate. That's true. I was reading an article about that today. Some new study came out about why people's memories are not accurate. And they, some people are saying it may have to do with the way humans are evolved to obey rules. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it was kind of interesting that you mentioned because I just saw an article about that today. Yeah, actually, I think I shared that on my stream. That's probably um, why I saw it, where I saw it, though. That deeply connects to the ideas of what Ramana Maharishi and Nisargadatta would often say is you can't trust your mind. Your mind's going to tell you so many things that aren't true. And so now there's a balance there, of course. But the point is that, is that we really need to look into ourselves and start to see what why we're craving and what we're craving. Uh-huh. And so there are base human desires that we definitely don't want to necessarily suppress, but in the same sense, it's not a complete free-for-all. We know that we need to have a balanced certain expression of certain things at certain times. Um, and a lot of that was coming from Ayurveda because they were encouraging people to live in harmony with nature. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so, for example, if you suppress your urge to urinate, it would be you're at a job where you can't get up and go to the bathroom because they won't let you. And over time, that's not going to be healthy, or you're supposed to only eat at certain times so people suppress their hunger. Or someone says, I'm going to be so sophic and I'm not going to have any sex, and they, they try to suppress that, and this kind of idea that they're doing some kind of great sublimation, and they just go crazy, and it comes out really skewed in some other ways. I think we've all seen that. You know. we, we have. And I, I like what you had to say about, you know, we, we, we aren't who we think we are. I, I keep on saying that. It, you know, it's one of those things that I, I am not who I think I am. Yeah. How other people perceive me oftentimes is very different what I'm thinking about myself. Completely. And I've observed this. And in the Gurdjieff work, I mean, he talks a lot about the difference between essence and personality. Yeah. And you know how you have this, this you have this essence that you're born with, but over time there's damage that's done to you, and you develop a false personality. And yeah. now you you got to work you got to work on breaking that down and developing this very immature essence. And one of the things that Gurdjieff said to people is like what it does not like. Mm-hmm. And you know the the idea that the it was this false personality. You know, learning to like something that you think you don't like but in fact you have no real way of knowing that because you don't really know who you are yeah and madame de salzman one of his pupils wrote this uh essay called the first liberation and she talked about it's all about how we lie how we lie about everything how we lie about what we think we like and dislike oh constantly. And, 
and we have really no concept of that. And I, I, we, we look at um, divorce statistics in the United States being around 50%. And, of course, that's going to happen because if people don't even know themselves, they have no idea what kind of partner is good for them. And they certainly have no capacity for actually knowing the partner either. Absolutely. And it's yeah. that lack of self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, uh, that for for that people perish. To quote the Bible, it's you know, the la- that lack of self knowledge. And some people will criticize. I've heard people criticize the no the concept of self observation and working with the self. And you're navel gazing and being selfish. I'm just saying this is probably your one chance, particularly in a kali yuga, as you mentioned, for people to actually come to some understanding of what the, what what they're working against every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a real real important kind of thing to keep in mind, and, and I think that's one of the foundational ideas behind having the guru or the teacher yeah. or the mentor because they could uh, judge you in a way that you couldn't judge yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm always shocked that people can grasp the idea that you can't teach yourself martial arts, you can't teach yourself surgery, mm-hmm. you can't teach yourself basic electronics to go to advanced levels, but yet you can instantly communicate with any deity of the day of the week. You can instantly know everything. It's just, to me, that's, it's not only absurd, it's quite dangerous. And I think yeah. as a result of that, um, that does draw in a lot of questionable forces. So I think the left-hand path is a ruthless self-examination. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. It's a ruthless deconstruction, and it is very dirty. And so then it is very dangerous, uh, and it's definitely not glamorous. No, it isn't. I mean, I you know I know when I have been on. I keep on coming back to the fourth way, but the fourth way has and actually um, Stephen Flowers, Doctor Stephen Flowers, has actually uh, argued in one of his books uh, on the left hand path that the fourth way might be a left hand path system. I'm not going to agree or disagree with that, but it's kind right. of interesting. But when I'm when I'm at one of our intensive weekends, it's a brutal process. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I'm sitting there and there's mirrors all around me, like I'm in a house of mirrors. Yeah. Because of the way the, the weekends are put together and the way that work is put together, that you're constantly seeing yourself and it, it's often very brutal. Now, of course, there's also always the risk, of course, of that brutality can be even more severe than it has to be, that you're also yeah. taking your own judgments and that's what you're adding to that. So that's why having a teacher, as you point out, is probably a good idea. Absolutely. Somebody who can rein you in and saying, hey, I think you're being a little hard on yourself. You're not seeing all this. Yeah, 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 totally. Or uh, why do you have this expectation? There's a book um, called Unseen Warfare. It was written by an Eastern Orthodox monk. And one of the things he talks about in there is when you notice yourself doing something bad, yeah, you need to come down on yourself. You need to acknowledge that you did wrong. He said, but if you're dwelling on it and beating yourself up, that is in and of itself a form of pride because you seem to be thinking that you're supposed to be doing better than everybody else. What makes you think that that you've fallen so far? Why do you have such high expectations of yourself? So having a, as you point out, having a teacher can really kind of stop, nip that in the bud and prevent a very unhealthy cycle from mm-hmm. happening, it seems to me. No, I agree. I think you're spot on. I think everything about that is very important. I mean, just having these discussions are important because the, I, don't think, I don't think these discussions are the norm. No, they're really not. You know, I, I think you've brought, you know, some good points. I mean, we live in an age today where people think that, oh, I'm going to learn this myself. I can pick up a book. Oh, I can go on uh, uh, and just do a Google search and find out all the information I want on on tantric practices. Or I can uh, go to one of the uh, uh, free services. I can't uh, even think of it off the top of my head. Uh, Scribe, for an example. And, you know, and find this particular systems and initiation rituals or blah, blah, blah. And and therefore, I know as much as those who have been quote-unquote initiated in, into yeah. these particular schools the mysteries have. And it's one of the big downfalls of technology, as we yes. had discussed earlier, is that with technology at people's fingers, they think they know everything. Uh-huh. And then you sort of get a, this um, this idea, which uh, I'm sometimes at odds with. Well, you know, it's, it's, again, kind of new agey. Well, it's all inside of me, and it's whatever my own particular God says is true for me. Well, okay, you got to know what voice you're listening to first. <laughs> and some of this does take some actual guidance. And 
uh, a legitimate teacher. And, you know, I want to kind of backtrack to something that Bishop Peterson was talking about earlier and that you've touched bases on. But, you know, I think teachers is always a very, uh, you know, a subject that, um, you know, we need to talk with students and just really how important it is. And I think especially in something like a tantric practice, I think that there's definitely the possibility of abuse. Yeah. Um, I have seen it a numerous or numerous times here within the Western traditions, especially systems that uh, um, kind of teach various forms of sexual magic or, or things along those lines <laughs> that, uh, hum, well, you, you know, dear sister, you know, for you to be initiated into the next degree, um, okay. let me show you my sacred bridal chamber here. Yes. And, um, you know, and if we perform this great rite a numerous amount of times, I, too, can transfer you to the mysteries of the nth degree. I mean, um, aren't you even going to ask my sign first? Um, oh, no, because, uh, you know, I'm psychically in tune to this, you know, of course. You pulled it from the astral. Yeah, exactly. You know. You know, my astral guide showed this to me. Um, but I think, you know, you, there is definitely, um, definitely, I think um, there would have to be lots of concerns on both the student and the teacher. I know that um, um, I'm always very hesitant on how much particular information I'm going to discuss with any student until there is a relationship and a comfort zone. And one of the things that I kind of always explain to students right off the bat, everything A starts with a conversation, B, it's kind of a discernment process both for you as well as for me, you know. And, um, you know, there's many times the student just doesn't fit. So, bye-bye, you know. No, absolutely. Um, I think it's important for us to be okay with that. But with Tantra, you know, anything in particular that students need to be looking out for? I mean, you know, if a particular mentor or guru, if we use that term, you know, puts a student to either A, in something that they're just not comfortable with, with their own sexuality, um, should there be things that the student questions like, whoa, 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 uh, just because you think I should be doing this doesn't mean I'm ready to do this, you know? Um you know, I know in a lot of times when it comes to especially things within the sexual magical realm mm -hmm. is, is that a lot of it isn't as much on the physical plane as it is on the astral plane or takes place between kind of this divine internal alchemical process. But I know within many of the tantric practices, no, we are actually talking physical practices here. Right, right. Well, I you think there's a couple things. I think that I mean, that's a huge question, mm -hmm. so, and it's an important question, but I think, number one, our society is so dysfunctional with sex on the most base level mm -hmm. that to even take this idea into the tantric level, it's, it's almost just an accident waiting to happen. I mean, we can't even talk about sex with children in a normal way. How are you going to talk about sexual magic with a level with people who are seeking a system of some kind of like magical enlightenment? Mm -hmm. And so, so it's very challenging. So I think that we have, that's why the psychology, the psychological evaluation becomes so important. Um, I think it's so important for someone to understand their own sexuality and understand wh what that even means to them. And then number two, I think it is a, a big uh, danger for people to abuse that. And, uh, and so then that's um, a very, um, I think when they abuse that, then it, it's, it vitiates the entire system uh, with that as well, too. So, but I also think, too, that, you know, in the systems which I work, particularly with African or Haitian, like esoteric Vunan or left-hand path tantric practices, our systems of sexual magic are extremely complex. And, there, and there's some things involved the physical body, but some things involved at a different level that's beyond just the physical body and not just some kind of quasi new age astral realm. Mm -hmm. Like for example, I think our libidos um, are much more cosmic in the scope in the sense that we see that when we create anything in our world life, we have a creative idea or we create art or we create a book that's sexual. Mm -hmm. It's sexual in the sense of you're manifesting something. And particularly, in particular with the left-hand path, you want to get to the point where literally everything in your life 
is a sacred offering to the goddess. And everything you're doing is an alchemical interaction with the goddess. So sexuality can be quite diverse in that. Um, but it can also be a, just a straight sexual practice, of course. Uh, so I think people need to be careful. People need to be, of course, uh, um, discriminating in who they talk to. And then they also, I mean, you also want to look at the teacher's past students. You know, I talk about yes, that a lot. Yeah, really you really want to look and see what have their students gone on to do. And, and you have they, have they, has the teacher allowed people to become more of who they are? Have they stimulated each person to strive to a, a unique level of being? Or have they sought to mold every student on a certain way or hold student backs or manipulate students? Because teachers, and I ideally should produce students that go on to do great things. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. In my opinion. And so that's what I, you know, I think that we want to look at that. If you look at a teacher and all their students are dysfunctional and have problems, well, then maybe I'd be concerned there, you know. Yeah, and so, yeah. so I think that's a big important thing for us to look at, too. Uh, what, what's been the fruit? Um, yeah, the fruit's that, short. That's a big thing, judging things by their fruits and seeing how people are integrated. What are they producing? Um, and that's a tricky thing, of course. And there's no, there, there's no black and white answers to all these things. But I think these kind of dialogues we're having are very important instead of just saying, oh, there's a secret. And then once you get this secret and you get the secret initiation, then you're going to be magically here. And, uh, and I think that's a danger that I see people constantly doing. Mm -hmm. I remember when going online back in the 90s and when people were starting to publish the materials from various esoteric orders and people would, you know, grab them, download them and expect to be finding some secret that was going to zap them up to epistemus. And instead <laughs> what they found was a bunch of mumbo jumbo that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. It was very yeah. disappointing because of course this is material that you have to work. Yeah. You have to actually work the material for that mystery to be open to you. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't want to do that kind of work, and they actually think that they can download it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big thing. So that, that whole living the gnosis, making it, I like to refer to it as like, or as embodying the gnosis. Mm -hmm. We have to embody the practice. We have to embody the gnosis. And I ask that consistently with people. I'll often say, what is your practice? Yeah. You know, or, or we would say, what is your sadhana? And then they have to have something. And, and I think any good priest or bishop or guiding people would want to have, you know, people cultivating that as well, too. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think these things are really, really key. It just shows that everything has an environment which stimulates some kind of catalytic, catalytic alchemical process. And we can't ignore any of those environments. It absolutely changes you. Um, yeah, there's. We, we know this. And the interesting thing, the research into neuroplasticity, for yeah. example, has indicated that even people who are are, are, are older can actually change their brains Definitely. through entering into either a spiritual practice like meditation, but also learning a new language, learning a craft skill, something like that. Mm -hmm. the, these are po these changes are possible, and they continue to be possible even past an age when people thought it was impossible. Now, maybe harder as you get older. Um, to do these, learn these things, but it's possible, and you can actually create those real changes if you're willing to work and not just read about it. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that the word uh, in the in the Bible is often translated as repentance, metanoia. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it literally means to change your mind, to change one's mind, and it's yeah. I implying that it's a not just like. Oh, I think this one day, and I think that the next day. It's an actual uh, a difference in the way that you think. It's a it's a mm -hmm. change in your thought patterns, as, as it were. Yeah. yeah, definitely. There was some some knowledge that they had. They had they had gnosis of of the mind. They, you know, they didn't necessarily understand all about the brain at that point. But there was a definite notion that there was something there that could be changed. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. important because I mean, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, I think this, that's right, and, and, and Father Silvio nailed it with that one. It's very important to think about. And I, I, I even think that reading materials, or what I refer to as you know, sacred text within certain traditions, will only open up their, quote, secrets within the environment of that tradition, um, because it, it's creating a certain environment between the teacher and the student, between each person's own kind of cosmic mind space, and then the text opens up a doorway, and then there's a dialogue, and then another level yeah, the yeah. text opens up. 
And it's not just, and I get this question constantly, you know, uh, you know, you know, what, what can your book offer me? You know, as if I'm trying, if I'm going to sell it to them. And I, I, you know, at that point, I don't even care. I, it's, I'd rather not sell a book to someone if they're going to think of it that way. Um, that, you know, the architecture of vocabulary can create a certain mind space for someone to transform if they're ready, if it's done the right way. If not, it will just, it will, you know, the secrets are there, but they won't even be able to see it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, and we, we do the Gospel of Thomas on this show frequently. We have we have a we're doing an ongoing series, Gospel of Thomas. We read the verse out loud, oftentimes a couple of times, and then we all have a discussion. And what I found is that these Gospel of Thomas discussions, I am physically energized by the end of them. Because what we have here is we're actually working through that text. It's not a passive reading. No, I think that's so important. And I use that text constantly. I think that when you do that, you you literally reawaken that text. Yeah. There's a spirit in that text. And in Sanskrit, we call that a vidya. Okay. Some kind of force that you awaken. And then that vidya, when that becomes awakened, reveals things that aren't just on the printed paper or the printed word. And, and so that's become so sacred and so important. So that's wonderful that you guys yeah. are doing it is, and as I said, it just when I when I get done doing the show, it doesn't make any difference how rotten a day I've had. <laughs> I am vivified. I mean, there's just this physical energy that permeates my body after I have spent time with my brothers, um, working through these texts and arguing. Sometimes arguing, sometimes discussing, sometimes agreeing. But there's always that work, that yes. substantial work. So I think it's really when, you, when you're talking about your own book. Um, my guess is that you perhaps we have, we have the term workbook for things that we're supposed to write in, but I get I think maybe all books ought to be workbooks or all books on s- spiritual topics should be workbooks in that we're actually working with that text. Just as you labored to put that together, we yeah. should be laboring to read it. Yeah, without a doubt, there there has to be some kind of you know in Sanskrit we call that tapas. There's some kind of fire to your practice that you're cultivating, and that fire. Um, starts to creatively, you know, it's like a creative incubation. Something starts to mold and become of that. And then if you have a group doing that with the same system, it can be even more powerful. And it can become very healing. It can become very transformative. It can become very inspiring. And that's the idea of what we want from a group or a system or an order. Um, I think many magical orders, magical or spiritual orders now, really run a risk of becoming social groups. Yeah, which is fine, uh, but then they just need to be called social groups. If it's mm-hmm. a spiritual practice, then we need to understand that the fraternity is critical. But the fraternity takes us to one level, and then if it's sustained, we can go even deeper. Like what you're describing happens. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that the word for such organizations might, at a deep, at a, possibly, this is an idea, a deeper be better, best, better called a community? In the sense that when you have fraternity, you have, you know, the idea is you have friendship or you're a social group, you're socializing. But in a, in, a, in, a, in a neighborhood community, I may not always like my neighbors. I may not always spend time with them. But we all have to live together and share certain resources and, and respect, have some kind of basic respect for each other's op, you know, operate, way of operating. Yeah. Can you say that in spiritual groups that a better goal is to cultivate community, not necessarily friendships, but we are all we're all sharing these resources together, so we need to figure out how to do that to everybody's benefit? Yeah, I would think so for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big important thing to do that we have to look at something larger that is a group that we're representing a system, we're representing uh, forces that go beyond just the mundane realm. And then within that, we're trying to form some kind of architecture so that these these cosmic forces can manifest, mm-hmm. much like we do when we do a mass. You know, we're, yeah. we're creating some kind of cosmic architecture where something can fill it. Mm-hmm. And then it, whether you're by yourself or with two or three people or 20 people, obviously, can be stronger. Um, but that's why it can be so transformative. Um, working with the sacraments is very important to me, and I always feel better after doing that. And, yeah. And Everyone else does, and so and then that's because there's something larger you're kind of creating uh, in different levels. Whether we call it chi or prana, or there's different ways we can do that. But I think you're right. Yeah, we are building pranic webs with the groups. Mm-hmm. Where, um, some people call that a negregore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's different ways you could word it. So I think that that's very important. You know, that's a very important idea to entertain. 
Yeah, the, the egregore, I, I, it's becoming more and more important the more work I do with other people in, in locally, uh, but also, uh, you know, long distance, but primarily locally, the, the, you start to feel that and you, you start yes. to encounter that. And the importance of, of not, you know, not only benefiting from it, but also protecting it and mm -hmm. keeping it from being contaminated by a whole lot of toxic stuff. And Bishop Canterbury, mm -hmm. you know all about that. Absolutely. Um, you know, that becomes so important. There's a sense of really, you can develop a sense of responsibility that goes way beyond yourself. I mean, you have to maybe start working on yourself, but sooner or later, if you keep doing that in the right way, it seems to me, you will eventually be far more better equipped to um, start working with others and start to build that egregore yourself. Yeah, without a doubt, I think it's very important. I think you brought up a good point. Is there there is a sense of responsibility of protecting it, yeah, respecting it. Um, I think that's so important. I'm very uh, much like that with the systems I work. I think that we need to respect those forces and not uh, use them to sell products or you know to, to look cool or act a certain way. It's very easy for our culture to do that, right? Right. And you could you know if you really are intuitive or observant. You can see that happen in both the occult community and the yoga community or the spiritual realm. Certain buzzwords start to become cool. And then before you know it, everyone all of a sudden is talking about Tantra or everyone's talking about Kali or now everyone's doing Vudan and everyone's doing this because it becomes the cool thing to do or mm -hmm. the dark thing to do. Um, <laughs> you know, then I think at those times it becomes incumbent upon the traditions you don't necessarily, you don't, I'm not saying like attack people and say, you know, everyone has to have a membership card of who can say what, but we need to really kind of examine ourselves and our groups and say, are we respecting it? Are we representing it in an authentic way? You know, at least being aware and having these kind of discussions for something as important. Incredibly important. Father Tony, you always have some really excellent questions. Do you have anything that you want to add? No pressure, right? Um, no, never. <laughs> I do, actually. Uh, you mentioned a phrase that I found interesting during the video portion of the show. You, you said, um, cultivate the mind of a student. And I've not heard that phrase before, but it immediately sounded interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's really important for us to think about that because it, once we, you know, particularly we talked earlier about now we have such access to information um, and we can, it's easy to get surface information very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. And so people can instantly get something quickly, but often that instant information isn't really thorough uh, or it's just not accurate. And then so that gets layered and layered and built up and people think they really understand something, but you can like, you know, we can talk to them for five minutes and see that they're not. Um, and so I saw a really funny interview one time to bring in a really base pop culture example, which I found fascinating. I believe it was on Turner Movie Classics, and they were asking Leonardo DiCaprio how he picked who he worked with. And he said he can pick who he works with within four to five minutes of a conversation with a director or a writer because he had such a volume of history of film that he could easily weave a story. And if the person couldn't understand it, he would know the person was lying within five minutes. And so that's just a base example, but within our traditions with that, um, I think now people are coming to us either proclaiming to be experts or having already a chip on their shoulder at some level, and maybe because they were wronged by certain teachers. But for us to have that student mind really allows us to learn, it allows us, it allows us to open, it allows us to form new neural pathways if we want to use scientific knowledge. You know. In yoga, we use terms like we have samskaras or vasanas, these kind of mental conditionings. And if we don't let those go, um, we'll, we'll only learn ways that we think we're going to learn. And so I think that's going to be an important thing for us to approach any subject with an open mind and a student's mind, a beginner's mind. And when you have that mind, uh, you are excited to study with the teacher. You're mm -hmm. excited to study with the teacher, and you're also quite excited to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yes. Help help me. You know, mm -hmm. the funny thing is, is that I, I don't think I was a very good student for much of my adult life. And interestingly enough, when I was in my 30s, I took a job in a, in a role that 
uh, I hadn't ever anticipated getting this kind of a job before, but I was working in regulatory compliance. So I had to understand laws, regulations, industry standards. And unlike in a lot of areas of business where it's fake it till you make it, there was no room for that regulatory compliance because if I was wrong, people could lose their jobs, businesses could close down. So I had to learn how to say, I don't know. Yes. And I had to, both to myself and to the people around me. And the things, you know, uh, regu- regulations, laws, regulatory offices, their ways are not our ways. And yes. things that make good sense or common sense are frequently not the way things are. And I had to learn over a period of five years, I had to break down that desire to be right, to be to know it all, to have you know, to appeal to common sense. And I believe those five years is what prepared me for moving forward in my spiritual growth and practice. Without those five years and that role and learning how to break myself down, I don't think a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now would have ever have happened. That's hmm. fascinating. Yeah, that's that's much how medicine does it for me. Because if you don't know something in medicine, you can't lie. Yeah, and, get, and if you or you can, and then you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Yeah, the patient will. So um, you have to be able to open and say, "I don't know." So. And I, so I think it's just I loved what you just said about being able to say, "I don't know," and I think that that in a way is when you can when you can do that and feel it and know it. Maybe then you can maybe you can take a step. Yeah, I agree. such an important yeah. part of that. That's why I think having mentors is so important. Mm-hmm having teachers and guides. I mean, anything I've ever done in my life, which I was felt was transformative, I had a mentor for. Mm-hmm. Whether running a marathon or learning medicine. <coughs> you know, obviously within spiritual systems, uh, every spiritual system I've ever worked um, had, had gurus and teachers and mentors and still do. You know, I still, mm-hmm. they're very, they're, they're my family to me. They're actually more important in many ways than my uh, blood family. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's a family of choice, definitely. So these are these. It's interesting, to, but that's, so I think having that open-minded student mind is very crucial. Very crucial. But it also reminds me of the importance that we were talking about psychotherapy, appropriate psychotherapy, prior to really getting into this. Because many people may have grown up in families where they, by necessity, had to develop defense mechanisms, where they had to be know-it-alls, or they they don't trust people, and they have good reason not to trust because they have damage. But by working through that in therapy... um, you're, you might be a lot more open when working with a teacher instead of constantly shutting it down. Yes. You're in a position where you know how to appropriately protect yourself and take care of yourself, but to also be far more open to what the teacher has to offer. Definitely. That's very, very important. Can I shift gears here for a minute? Um, sure. Always. I know last time we had you on the show, Bishop Williams, well, back when it was uh, pa- Peter Williams, uh, <laughs> so some time ago, um, yeah. we talked a little bit about the uh, Ecclesia Gnostica Eterna. I'd uh-huh. like to revisit that if I could, because I, I bet a lot of our viewers um, uh, don't go back that far. And so right. could, you, could you give us a brief, brief overview of the church and, and uh, what they do to people and all that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Ecclesia Gnostica Eterna, you know, was, which is, you know, functions under the main hierophancy of David Beth, and then I'm the American bishop uh, of that, is a, definitely a unique system. I mean, I often refer to it as a type of heretical gnosis, because we do possess the apostolic succession, and we see it as an alchemical transformative practice. We definitely would not define ourselves as Christian, per se. Um, we, we trace it back to what we like to refer to as a cosmic gnosis, which is more ancient primordial traditions, which were definitely in existence pre-Christ, or the physical Christ. And so within that can be fed different systems, whether they're from India or, or, made, or the Western world. And so within that system, we use the sacraments and as a type of alchemical transformative practice, and then also see each person's role as harmonizing the physical body with the spiritual body with the psychological body so we do see the physical body as paramount and extremely important okay uh, and we often use terms we have a almost a Claudian view of soul versus spirit where we see this sometimes it can be a little bit of a technicality where we see the spirit and we oftentimes we refer to spirit we can almost mean a type of 
conditioned force which seeks to homogenize you and the soul is a more free realm. And so we seek to harmonize that. The spirit could often even be the ego. And so often people live in this internal battle of the ego over soul. And so our system seeks to kind of harmonize that so that we're transforming the senses to see everything through the eyes of the soul instead of the eyes of the ego. And it's not a killing of the ego. That drives me crazy when people say that or destroying the ego. Because when you destroy the ego, you just you fracture yourself and you, you're not a balanced person. So it's, it's about a harmonizing and an integration, which is what true alchemy is. Um, and I even see the sacraments as that. Um, as that. And we also do see that any uh, transformation that you can make in the physical body is extremely important. And so we see that that's what a physical transformation of gnosis, the working of the gnosis in the physical body, the one-to-one communication between the teachers, um, those things is very important. Um, so within our system, we we have we obviously use like for example, I teach the Gospel of Thomas extensively and the Gospel of Philip extensively, um, and uh, but also could pull from the Upanishads or from, or from the Rig Veda. Uh, uh, with with I do I have a mass of Shiva which I do which does that so um, it's a little bit more uh, primordial in that sense um, these will actually be interesting topics for us to talk about in the Voices of Modern Gnosticism conference yeah definitely yeah. I'm looking forward to that that'll be uh, it'll be a great conversation <laughs> will, that be, will, will that be taped yeah yes oh, I'm, awesome. looking, I'm looking forward to seeing that certainly certainly yeah, yeah. it'll be on the channel here so subscribe if you haven't oh excellent excellent so that should be an interesting idea. So, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, that answered that question for you. It yes, it did. Thank you. I mean, obviously, we can go on and on and. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But uh, yeah, so it looks like we're coming up to our hour here. So, um, uh, I wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to tell people where they can find you on the internet. Yeah, they could definitely. I mean, they can go to my website, which is AyurvedaAustin. dot com. Um, they can also, you know, my book, Kayla Numis, will be, you know, is available through Theon Publishing, which has a wonderful website, and they can find that as well, too, so. Yeah, we'll definitely put links in the description for that. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah. All right, so, uh, I, again, I'm looking forward to seeing you in, uh, what, a couple of weeks now, eight weeks, nine weeks? I'm excited about that. Yeah, Sounds that'll exciting. be a lot of fun. Um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I guess we'll close it out here. So for everybody who is watching and listening along at home, uh, we thank you for your support. Please uh, go over to patreon.com slash Gnostic if you haven't done so already and uh, become a patron. There's lots of great uh, perks and rewards. Plus, it's the right thing to do. It is. <laughs> and uh, <Lanny> says so. <laughs> it's true. And uh, your support helps us do all kinds of cool, awesome things like taping the Voices of Modern Gnosticism conference uh, in, in, uh, in Arlington, Massachusetts on November 30th, if you are in the area. Um, and I think that's it. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank Good you. night, everyone. Thank you. This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information on this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License.